You are Locked On Ravens, your daily Baltimore Ravens podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. And we are back with another episode of Locked On Ravens. I am your host, Kevin Ostreicher of Ravens Wire. And we are back with another Taco Tuesday episode. And back with us per tradition on our Taco Tuesdays is Spencer Schultz of Baltimore Beatdown. Spencer, some big steps were taken yesterday in regards to coronavirus protocols, the preseason. How are you doing today? Doing fantastic. Been in quarantine myself, so it's been, you know, uh, over two weeks, I was around someone who ended up testing positive. So it's been over two weeks now. So I'm, I'm happy. I'm still waiting on my test results, but, uh, just goes to show, you know, it's still here. It's still lingering around. It's still affecting our lives. And it's good to see that the NFL has kind of, uh, I don't want to say better late than never. Cause it's, it, it, they did kind of wait up until almost the final hour, but there seems to be some good, solid decisiveness coming out of the league. Uh, I feel like a lot of leadership has come out of the NFL PA, the players had a very uh, united front effort on Twitter yesterday to say, we want to play. We want to be safe. We want our families to be safe, but we want to play. Uh, that was the general sentiment. You saw, you know, good to star superstar players, Patrick Mahomes, JJ Watt, all, Russell Wilson, you name it, the who's who of the NFL took to Twitter yesterday. And I guess two days ago, actually now, and uh, pretty much said, we want to play. We want you to give us, you know, consistent testing. We want to have, you know, good protocol that is being followed and tracked and kept in place so that we feel safe. We know what's going on and you're happy to hear that from the players. You're happy to see that leadership. And in the end, you know, if everything goes well, it looks like the NBA actually had zero positive tests out of over 300 players in the bubble. So that's good news. It's great for if for the NFL, if the NBA is able to get started, the MLB is able to get started, the NHL is able to get started and just finish through. So once I think sports are on TV, hopefully in the next, you know, two weeks, then we're going to end up seeing the NFL really catch storm and able to ramp up and prepare themselves. They're going to have great opportunity to take, to uh, rack in some merchandising and sponsorship dollars from big companies. And I'm sure they'll be able to reap some rewards through that. We talked about that in the last episode, but I think there's definitely, uh, you know, some gold value there and it's good news, good news all around. So I'm happy. And it looks like we are getting football in some capacity and I can't be more excited. Yeah, it really seems like these were great steps that we're going to talk about here. And you mentioned, you know, the NBA, the MLB, the NHL. Hopefully these leagues will be able to get going and keep up and keep the stuff going, keep the action going. Hopefully no shutdowns are needed because once we get those back and then the NFL, of course, sports will, for the most part, you know, be back. And obviously there's so much uncertainty still, but it's a start. And just getting the players back and getting the sports back, I think it's a really, really big step. But Spencer, when you look at some of these policies that were agreed to and everything related to the coronavirus testing, the NFL and the NFLPA agreed to daily COVID-19 testing, and that's for the first two weeks of camp. And then after that, they'll look at positivity rates. So if the positivity rate drops below 5% for players and coaches, executives, those individuals, they're going to move to an every other day system. And Spencer, I want to ask you first, do you think this is a good step? Do you think maybe they should maybe continue? continue to do daily testing even after two weeks and those positivity rates are lower? Do you think it's all right for them to kind of ease up on it as the positivity rates hopefully would drop? So I think that they use some pretty good common sense here. So as camp's coming in, 
the games haven't started yet. Players have been, you know, either working out or not. That's their own prerogative. But they come in. They're going to get tested every day for two weeks. So they're going to be able to isolate, find and isolate the players that do have it, have them quarantine, test them continuously until they come up negative. They're they're symptom free. Uh, and have recovered. And then, you know, I mean, I, I was just talking with you earlier. And then last episode, I said I went and got a coronavirus test. It's the same one the players are using. It's a nasal swab. I did it. I would certainly, 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 certainly be willing to do that if my own current employer asked me to do that, uh, let alone the NFL. And I was an NFL athlete. You tear up a little bit, but it takes all of, you know, 30 seconds to do. It's quick. It's going to help you make your money. It's going to help you res- resume work and it's going to help you stay healthy. So I think it's absolutely a good idea. Um, I believe that every other day is fine as long as they maintain that and, and kind of stay true to it. Once you've really found and isolated the players that do test positive, you can kind of relax it just a hair. But you do want to keep consistent testing across the board. Make sure that everyone's getting tested uh, you know, multiple times every week. That way you can really find and isolate where it is, who has it, and get rid of it before the season starts. And then try and limit it as much as possible during the season. So I like it. It's going to put a little bit of onus on the players themselves to, uh, you know, socially distance, wear a mask, follow the protocols, not go out into, you know, crowded restaurants and uh, closed door environments during the season because they're going to end up jeopardizing themselves. They're going to jeopardize their team efforts uh, and, and it's going to cause a lot more trouble. So I expect, you know, maybe it ends up this season is just all about ball. There's not going to be a lot of fans, if any fans, uh, you, you st- there are still social distancing protocols in place. It really seems to me that this season is just going to be about ball and we might see some pretty pure football. There might be players who end up don't participating. You know, I've seen multiple NFL players, Donovan Smith coming to mind, the bucks left tackle. A lot of players have, you know, their, their wife is expecting their family's expecting a baby or they have an infant in the house and they don't quite feel safe yet. So maybe we see some guys that sit out for a little while and then are able to return midway through the year or a few games in or towards the end of the season or whatnot. And uh, that is what it is. But for the most part, it looks like, the NFL and the NBA and the MLB and the NHL are going to be able to all, you know, get back to sports and give us some sports. And uh, Lord knows we've been waiting for it. So it's good news all around. And I'm happy with the league's testing protocol. Yeah, I, I think these were really, really important steps. And the protocols that they agreed to, I think they're really good protocols, just like you said. But there was another point that Tom Pelissaro actually reported. And this was that the NFL actually contracted with a national lab to make sure that the testing needs didn't take resources away from the local markets. And that's something that the NFL thought was important to them. But obviously, I think it's really important, too. So there's going to be no negative impact on local supply for hospitals and other testing centers. How important is that? Obviously, not only for the NFL, but for the rest of the world and the NFL's initiative as well. It is important. It shows the NFL's somewhat uh, conscious of, you know, the real world in a way. And of course they do have their own sports and their, their own passions and their own careers and their own, you know, missions in life and all that stuff. But, uh, it, it, it would really, really stink if we couldn't play football, but it would stink a lot worse if, you know, this entire quarantine and COVID situation stays the way it is for a, a continued extended period of time. We've seen the CDC director say over the next, you know, four to six weeks, if everybody just wears a mask and socially distanced coronavirus can really be hammered into the ground. I think that as the South has unfortunately, but uh, kind of, you know, able to see that was going that was coming, uh, been swept up by coronavirus and the positivity rate in the South, they're going to take it more seriously. It feels like some of the northern states, especially in kind of the mid-Atlantic and the New York, New Jersey areas, took it very seriously because they were impacted very hard. So when something hits close to home, 
you know, it finally resonates in your head. So unfortunately, that's what it took. But if that is what it took and it helps us get rid of the situation, then um, I'm happy that it's going to be a good thing. And, and again, it's it's putting the, a lot of uh, spotlight onto the players and the players are going to be tested. They want their family safe. Some of them are hesitant to go do things and, and be around, you know, their infant children and things like that. And that shows the general population. A lot of people look up, a lot of kids look up to these NFL players and idolize them. And I mean, I know I did as a kid. So what do you see out of that? You see that the players want to get tested. They want to be safe. They want to be healthy. Uh, they, they want a social distance. They want to wear a mask. That's all going to resonate with, you know, younger population and with football fans alike, hopefully. And they see, you know, uh, Lamar Jackson can wear a mask. So can I, all that good stuff. So I think that's very important. And I do like the NFL was conscious of making sure that local, their local hospitals and everything of the sort had enough tests and they weren't contributing to that negatively. So some, some good stuff finally after a couple weeks of confusion. Yeah, it finally seems like everything is just going, you know, not according to plan. I guess it's really hard for that to happen, but everything is seeming to shape up to, you know, at least the semblance of, you know, good protocols and good morals and all this great stuff for the NFL, the NFLPA and everybody. But Spencer, I also wanted to ask you about some Ravens implications here. We were kind of talking about this before. But when you look at this Ravens roster and put the potential of maybe one or two of these guys potentially sitting out for some, if not all, of the season, because you mentioned, you know, people are expecting they have young kids, you know, they have family members with maybe pre-existing conditions. When you look up and down this Ravens roster, I know that some players on other teams have voiced concern and might be sitting out for some or all of the season. When you look to the Ravens roster, do you expect anybody on the team to maybe take a step back from the game for a little bit or for the entire season? Just by, you know, common statistics, I would imagine there might be two, three, four Ravens that have a situation. They're at risk themselves or they are around someone or they have kids or something of the sort and they don't want to expose to that. So I would think. But at this point, we haven't heard anything. And uh, seems to be a lot of the players that are hesitant or kind of established family guys with a wife and kids and are expecting, like we've said a hundred times already this episode. But when you look at the Ravens, you know, where it would hurt for them to lose a player. Lamar Jackson, he's a single guy. Hollywood Brown, a single guy. Mark Andrews, Orlando Brown, Ronnie Stanley, Marlon Humphrey. A lot of these players are younger, single. They want to play. Uh, we haven't heard anything out of that. There are, of course, some family guys on the team. You look at Derek Wolf, uh, you know, Calais Campbell, Brandon Williams. Uh, I'm sure there's there's quite a few of them overall that, that have those situations. So, again, I wouldn't be surprised to see uh, maybe up to five, three, four, five of them needing to take a little break and they're uncomfortable and they want to make sure that things are safe first before rejoining. And uh, sometimes that happens. I mean, sometimes players hold out over contract negotiations and things like that. So it wouldn't be totally uncommon. And if it's kind of prepared for and, and the team knows ahead of time and it's, it's not some, you know, out of the blue thing. Oh, nope, I'm not playing. I'm scared of coronavirus. You know, that's how you can really hurt your team. So. I would hope that players that do end up wanting or needing to sit out due to those complications, as previously mentioned, that they give notice so that, you know, the coaches and the coaching staff can accommodate the front office as well. Eric DaCosta can accommodate, you know, make trades, make signings, figure out where they'll be thin if something like that happens. It's, it's just more logistics to think of. And luckily, the Ravens seem to have a very good structure in place in Baltimore in the front office and uh, kind of thinking ahead of the game and, and ahead of the curve most of the time. So I think they'll be OK. But I would anticipate, you know, maybe a couple guys do end up sitting out for two, three games. We'll see how it ends up crumbling, but I believe the Ravens will be in good shape. 
Yeah, it's something that, that all teams are going to have to prepare for. Players, you know, potentially huge star players sitting out games, if not the entire season. You know, there have been star players from the NBA who are sitting out. Bradley Beal, for example. Victor Oladipo was going to, but, you know, he, he's probably coming back at this point. But still, star players, you're going to see some big names drop out. You're going to see some smaller names drop out. It's something where it can't get under control completely. You're not going to have everybody from every NFL roster play. So for Baltimore, it would be likely that maybe two or three of the guys would sit out. Across every team, it might be likely that two or three of the guys are, are going to sit out just because of those reasons. But we're going to head into our first break here. And when we get back, we're going to be talking a bit about the preseason. So stay tuned for that, and we will be right back. And we are back with our second segment of this Taco Tuesday Locked on Ravens episode. Kevin Ostriker still hanging out with you here with Spencer Schultz of Baltimore Beatdown. And Spencer, getting into the second segment, the preseason is the topic here, or I guess lack thereof at this point. There have been some new developments over, I guess, the past 24, 48 hours of preseason and we know that the preseason was cut from four games down to two games well now the preseason was the nfl originally proposed yesterday that the preseason be cut down more to one game but new news came out a little bit later in the day that said the nfl actually rebuffed that offer and resubmitted an offer to the nflpa that said they would consider the preseason being zero games. The league offered the union zero preseason games. That's a pretty big step, in my opinion, Spencer. Did you ever think that this was going to be the outcome? Because I know that the NFLPA proposed that in their CBA agreement originally before the two sides agreed to terms. So what do you think of all this? I think it's logical. It makes sense to cut down on travel, to spend more time in your own facility, getting these coronavirus, these COVID procedures in place, tracking, um, getting ramped up. And originally, before COVID really struck, the CBA ended up being agreed upon between the owners and the NFLPA. So we saw the players propose. They they sent forth zero preseason games, and the owner said back no. And they ended up settling on the four games. They didn't budge on that. They cut that to two, I guess, probably around a month ago. They said they were going to play, I believe, the first and the third weeks of the preseason. And then now finally it just makes sense. And in the end, it buys the NFL more time and it buys the clubs more time to be able to get all these protocols in place, follow them, track them, have guys quarantine. Um, so I think it's a good thing. I think that the ultimate decision that will come out of this, I think the best measure would be to have no preseason games in the future, but rather to have scrimmages and perhaps their uh, in the stadium, you know, maybe the fans get to go to M&T Bank and watch a live practice between, you know, let's say the Jaguars and the Ravens next year. And maybe they do one or two of those. We've seen the joint practices at the team facility, but maybe do it at the stadium, have that kind of environment, keep it a little bit more laissez-faire in the future uh, instead of, you know, quite as serious in the whole preseason spiel. Uh, I do, I did, you know, I went as a season ticket holder last year. I went and got to meet with Dick Cass and uh, asked him a couple of questions about it. And I asked him, you know, does your, training crew does the the travel team the equipment crew you know do they like having this preparation time to try and get everything in order and have a preseason game and he basically just you know kind of smiled and said no they don't need it they're ready to go the equipment crew is ready to go um so it seems like the preseason really has no point in the end uh you know of course there are the guys the the bubble guys that you know the ravens of course are an organization that prides themselves on keeping a bunch of undrafted guys and whatnot and that's a, a very uh, cute thing that goes on. And of course you do want to see guys get their chance, but they can prove themselves in practice. 
Um, they can prove themselves throughout the same. The, the coaches see them every day. You can kind of tell. And if you have these live scrimmages and things of the sort, I think you'll be able to see. Uh, so maybe, you know, it does take away just a small bit of opportunity from, you know, the 88th guy on the, the team roster heading into training camp. But in the end, it just feels very unnecessary. The preseason hasn't drawn a ton of attention. And of course, us, uh, you know, true football junkies were all over it, looking for the Otara Alakas and the Patrick McCarries of the world. But in the end, you know, it's not incredibly necessary to even still find those guys. You can figure those guys out in practice and those guys end up getting reps in the game because of how they performed in practice. So I think in the future after this, we might not see preseason games again, uh, maybe one or two of them at, at first. And then I think we eventually see them dissolve. And, uh, it just feels unnecessary. It's a long season. The regular season's four months. The playoffs are another month and a half or so. Um, so it's a super long season and a very physical sport. And it feels like the players, you know, need to try and get their rehab, get in shape and do all those things. And they might be able to do that a little bit more effectively without the actual games of the preseason. So we'll see. And and this year they'll get to really try it and see, and then maybe that's something that they can renegotiate. And, uh, perhaps the owners just don't want to do it. And we end up seeing it again next year, but it does feel unnecessary. And maybe, uh, it'll, it'll end up being fat that can be trimmed and the owners will kind of see it that way after this, but we'll have to wait and see. Yeah, it seems like a very realistic possibility that maybe there is no preseason in the future. Maybe there's a compromise. Maybe it's, hey, maybe it's two games. But again, I think that, I mean, you're right. The preseason as a whole, in general, is pretty, like, not unproductive, but I don't think it's necessary, as you mentioned. I agree 100% with you, Spencer. But you mentioned those bubble guys, and every year, every single year, the Ravens have those bubble guys. Getting into the actual roster, this decision to not have a preseason, or at least the NFL proposing to not have a preseason, who do you think out of these undrafted guys, you know, we could even go outside of undrafted second, third-year guys who are fighting for a roster spot, who do you think that that decision affects the most on the Ravens roster? Of course, you know, it's, it's it's those undrafted free agents. They've already reduced the roster from 90 down to 80. So the Ravens had, I believe, 22 undrafted free agents, a monster undrafted free agent class, and 10 of those guys are going to go. Um, and, you know, maybe there's a 15% chance that one of those 10 guys would have ended up sticking, but hopefully they're able to kind of evaluate them still and bring them back in next year or something. And it really does stink for them. It stinks for a lot of smaller school guys and, you know, there are a couple of guys that let's say you run a parallel universe, uh, you know, all 32 teams end up trimming 10 players at 320 undrafted free agents that aren't going to get an opportunity. And, you know, you would think that at least three to five of those guys would end up making a roster and probably, you know, 10 percent of them. So let's say one per team would probably have one of those guys make the practice squad. So it, it is difficult. It does stink. It, it's going to cut some people's dreams short for now, but it is what it is. It's a difficult business. It's been cutthroat. It's always been that way. And the coronavirus has definitely necessitated that a little bit. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm anticipating some of those, you know, maybe some of those special teams guys, maybe the Ravens don't really have time to bring in an undrafted free agent kicker right now. Uh, maybe they don't have time to bring in a couple extra long snappers or things of the sort. So it, it is ultimately going to end up being that, but guys like John Daka, uh, out of James Madison, guys like Tyler Huntley out of Utah, Jacob Breland from Oregon, Eli Wolf, the center from Missouri, those guys, you know, they got some notable contracts for undrafted free agents. So I'd anticipate those guys to stick around and be a part of that 80 man, uh, you know, training camp roster and see what those guys can do in practice and all that good stuff. So uh, it's going to be a unique offseason, but they're adapting and they're going to have to overcome. Yeah, I mean, definitely. These guys are going to be fighting for a roster spot. And, you know, the undrafted free agents, you know, they're kind of 
from the start, they have to work their way up. You know, the odds are against them. But, you know, if they have the talent, if they can prove it in the practices rather than the games, you know, it's just that extra practice time that they will have. And, Spencer, my final question for you before we head into our second and final break is with the extra, I assume the extra practice time these teams are going to get with the preseason being null at this point, or at least for the most part being null, how does this change the Ravens training camp regimen when it comes to having, you know, not as many travel days, in fact, zero travel days if there's no preseason and a bunch of other things that go along with having no preseason? How do you expect this to affect the Ravens actual training camp and practice schedule and the stuff they get done during the time before the regular season? Well, they're going to have more time now. They're going to have more time for practice instead of games. They're going to have more time for recovery. Uh, they're not going to have days wasted on travel and all that good stuff. So. They'll have a little bit more time, but at the same time, the coaches are going to have to adapt and make it a competitive environment and practice and keep it very engaging, uh, keep, keep the competition levels high. So, I mean, it kind of breaks the training camp up into two different segments, the, the actual training camp and then versus the preseason itself. Uh, so now it's going to be one long training camp. And of course, the practices are going to cut down in time eventually and all that good stuff. But it kind of makes the, the offseason feel a little longer in a way as a player. Practice can get a little monotonous at times. Uh, as opposed to playing in a preseason game and under the bright lights with the fans in the stands and all that good stuff. So the coaches are going to have to do a really good job of making sure to keep guys engaged, keep practice fun, uh, find activities to do, competition, uh, a lot of in-house stuff, a lot of team bonding, and make sure that they keep it fresh as opposed to getting stale. So uh, that's definitely going to be on John Harbaugh to uh, have his guys come up with fun little ways to do that. And I know that they've already really had to do that. They've been having these positional meetings and uh, all these different kinds of meetings, special teams meetings over Zoom. And I know that the Ravens leaked some some footage. They had J.K. Dobbins take the, the Ravens Twitter through a day of what it's like. And he ended up having a meeting with positional coach Matt Weiss, who coaches the running backs. And Matt Weiss played a game of who wants to be a millionaire uh, with J.K. Dobbins. And it was just questions like, what college did Coach Harbaugh go to? Was it Miami of Ohio? Was it Miami, Florida? Was it Michigan? Was it Western Michigan? Uh, and, then, and then there was other ones like, you know, on this specific pass formation, this pass set, this pass personnel, what is the correct call uh, to pay to make for you to pick up a blitzing linebacker through the A gap? And he would say that. So keeping it serious, keeping it light, keeping it fresh, having fun, inventive ways to do things. And I feel like John Harbaugh has always done a really great job of doing that. He notoriously has taken the rookies to the uh, I believe I might end up getting the name wrong, but the African-American History Museum. Uh, a couple of different places. He takes them to Gettysburg as well. Uh, they do movies, they do ice cream, they do food trucks, they do all these things. So the coaches are going to need to adapt as well and keep it fun. I mean, that's part of being a football coach. You got to get your guys into it. It's part of forming team bonding, part of keeping everybody engaged and having things fun. That's what you want to have as a coach. You want it to be serious when you want it serious, but you also want to make sure that everybody's, you know, happy and having fun and uh, at the end of the day, it, it is a game and that's what they want to do. So I'm, I'm confident that coach Harbaugh will be able to keep the players on their toes and thinking and having fun and all that good stuff. So we'll see how it pans out. I'm sure we'll get a lot of good content out of it. The Ravens media team always does a great job keeping us involved and as fans and things of the sort. So, uh, we'll see. Yeah, it's, it's always great to see what's going on, whether it be a training camp practice, a preseason game, regular season game. The Ravens media team here really does a great job. But again, this is all new territory. So with the preseason not being there, most likely, it's going to be interesting to see just how this all pans out. But we're going to head into our final break now. 
And when we return, we are going to be getting into some deep passing things with Spencer here talking about Lamar Jackson and more. So stay tuned for that and we will be right back. And we are back with our final segment of this Locked on Ravens Tuesday edition episode. Spencer Schultz of Baltimore Beatdown still here with me, Kevin Ostriker. And Spencer, now as we get into, I guess, some actual Ravens and football talk, uh, talking about Lamar Jackson's deep passing and just deep passing throughout the entire NFL. I, I personally do expect the Ravens will throw the football deep a lot more than they did in 2019, which just is a general thing, Spencer. How important is the art of deep passing in the NFL and how good is Lamar Jackson at it? Well, you know, that's kind of been one of the main talking points this year as far as the progression of Lamar Jackson. Uh, And I do believe that, as usual, the media kind of puts him under a microscope. And that tends to happen with these dual threat quarterbacks where uh, you want to hold them to a different standard and put them under a microscope as opposed to, you know, a wide angle lens. So they end up being a little bit critical and there ends up being confirmation bias when you do see an inaccurate pass. But uh, Johnny Kinsley, who does brick wall blitz. Uh, has a great website. He does something called the Deep Ball Project, and it's actually kind of ends up getting rounded out in Football Outsiders. They have him on as a guest writer of sorts, and he breaks down deep ball passing and he charts accuracy. Uh, because when you just look at completion percentages and you just look at that, it, it doesn't tell the story of the quarterback alone. That also involves a wide receiver. It involves the coverage and involves all that good stuff. So the best way to look at it is through the the lens of accuracy. And Johnny Kinsley had Lamar Jackson as the 12th most accurate deep ball passer in the NFL this past season. And he was ahead of guys like Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady, Derek Carr, uh, Ryan Tannehill. I mean, a, a who's who of a lot of different guys. And, you know, the, the, the best deep ball passers in the NFL are only accurate over 20 yards. That qualifies as, you know, a deep ball is 20 plus yards uh, around 55% of the time. Accurate. Uh, Kyler Murray was actually his most accurate deep passer. Kyler Murray only threw five passes over 40 yards. He was the only quarterback to be accurate on five or more uh, 40-yard passes. So that speaks a lot about Kyler Murray. The one area of Lamar Jackson's uh, kind of arm talent and overall accuracy is the deep left. That kind of has been his uh, weakest area. And when you look at it, he's actually right about, you know, average to below average when he comes in at 21st of the 38 qualified deep passers. And over the middle as well, he was 5 of 13 on those. And over the middle, passing deep can be a little funky. Uh, and then to the right, he was 12 of 18, 66.67, so basically two-thirds accuracy. That was number two in the NFL. He was the second most accurate deep ball passer to the right. Uh, under center, he only threw one, which was not accurate. Then from shotgun, he was the 10th most accurate, completing 24 of 46. Uh, when kept clean, he actually was 19th, so not great there. Uh, when he didn't have pressure, he was 18 of 38. Uh, in terms of accuracy, when under pressure, he was actually the second best in the NFL. So when there was pressure in Lamar Jackson's face, he was accurate on six of his nine attempts. Uh, then you go ahead and look at inside the pocket. He was 22 of 43. That's 51 percent accuracy from inside the pocket. That was ninth in the NFL. And the most impressive uh, and kind of telling a little bit when you look at both sides of it. So in tight window throws, deep ball passes over 20 yards. Jackson was 14 of 30. And that's a 46 percent accuracy rating and Lamar Jackson was fourth in the NFL in that category. So like I said, you know, earlier when we were off of uh, recording, you know, it kind of tells a little bit of a story of how fans might look at NFL quarterbacks as these, you know, machines that always perfectly sprinkle deep balls over the top. But in reality, I mean, into tight windows, which means with when coverage is one yard or less, so pretty good coverage uh, within a step or two, 
14 of 30 is super accurate. That's top five in the NFL. So NFL passers aren't these automated, you know, slot machines that are just turning out these amazingly accurate passes all the time. Uh, that That's, you know, a lot lower than you would think. So I think fans need to maybe lower their expectations overall of deep ball passers a little bit. Uh, Russell Wilson, you know, a fantastic one in similar situations, tight window. He was 17 of 58 and he was eighth. Um, so you know, going ahead and looking at that, there's there's a little bit less volume for Lamar. And then the one concerning thing you do see is open window as opposed to tight window. That is when the coverage is not as tight. It is over a yard away, you know, three, four steps plus. Jackson was only 10 of 17. That's 58 percent. That was good for 24th. So that was his worst metric among all of the metrics that Johnny Kinsley, he does a great job. But the worst metric for Lamar was open window. And uh, I was actually talking on Twitter with Derek Clausen, who does QB class. Uh, and he is a writer for Football Outsiders as well. And he kind of broke down. Uh, he's a guy that I, I am absolutely positive he knows more about throwing mechanics than I do. He does great work. I would highly recommend following him. His at is at QB class with a K. Uh, his name is Derek Klazin. But so, again, it comes back to Lamar Jackson's mechanics. They've been a work in progress. And sometimes Lamar has a tendency uh, when he doesn't really hitch step and drop and then come forward and start to hitch. Uh, he, he takes his front foot his guide foot and he keeps it a little bit too tight instead of taking it out wide outside of his shoulder or shoulder width. He's a little too tight. And what happens with that from what Derek explained was that, you know, essentially it causes him to have to overcompensate with his arm as opposed to being able to really rip and torque his hips and roll his hips and get that good torque and rotation that allows him to be super accurate and guide the ball to where it needs to go. Uh, so sometimes he's able to overcompensate and it works out really well. He, Lamar is a super talented uh, arm talent. He can spray the ball all over the field, but he can kind of overcompensate in the intermediate and shorter ranges with his arm slots and arm angles and uh, his really whip-like motion. But when you start to get a little bit deeper at times, Lamar, especially middle and middle left, uh, can can keep it a, a bit too tight and he needs to open up. And that's a problem that's gone all the way back to his Heisman football, his Heisman season uh, 2017 at Louisville when Jackson you know, had a really narrow base. And that's why a lot of people criticized him as a passer. And uh, they never really understood his processing, but the mechanics were too tight. His feet were too tight. And like I just said, he overcompensated with his upper body. That has been a work in progress. James Urban has worked at that for two years now. This will be the third year of it. And the, when you look at it from what it was last year in Lamar Jackson's, you know, NFL touchdown leading season, unanimous MVP, you go look at his 2017 Louisville tape where he's still tearing up defenses. The, the progress is day and night. He's way more open now than he was then. There are just some instances now where he is uh, definitely a little bit too closed. And that's something that's just going to keep working and working. And, you know, Lamar is a master of his craft and a master of practice. So, I mean, the the improvements that he made last year were astronomical. But there is a little bit of work. When guys are wide open, he needs to not rush it. He needs to, you know, make sure he gets his foot out wide and, and, and follows through with his hips and uh, pull the ball and, and really get some spin under it so that he can guide it. There was a pass to Mark Andrews and the New York Jets and the Ravens were on their way to the blowout. And, and Andrews just gets a blown coverage and Lamar keeps his foot super tight. Uh, whips his arm really heavy and he just overshoots Andrews like two yards. And there were probably, you know, six or seven of those that, I'm, that you see Lamar. He is, doesn't really uh, do a great job hiding his emotions in those situations. Not that he needs to necessarily, but that he wears his emotion on his sleeve. You see him get upset, smack his helmet. You see him say, damn. Uh, and and so a couple of those got away from him. So, you know, let's reduce that number from six, seven, eight, nine down to, you know, two, three, four, five. And then that's an improvement Lamar could make. And overall, as I said, I believe that fans do have a little bit too high of expectations of NFL passers. The game is so fast. They are truly so accurate. It's unbelievable. But at the same time, uh, they're not, 
you know, spitting out 80% accuracy on their deep ball passes. It's just not the way it works. Uh, you know, that would take a robot that would take uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and the Terminator. And, you know, Lamar Jackson might be close to that, but he's not quite there. Yeah, I mean, for the Ravens, I think, you know, looking overall in the NFL for Baltimore, for everybody, the, the whole deep passing metric, it's really something that if you dive into it like you have, Spencer, it's extremely, extremely interesting. But my final question for you is with the Ravens, with the personnel that they have brought in to, I think, spread the football field out. You bring in speed with Devin Duvernay. You have a healthy Hollywood Brown. I, as I mentioned, I think the Ravens are going to do a lot more deep passing this season than last. How do you think the personnel stacks up with the deep ball passing within the NFL, the trend of deep ball passing and everything else? I believe that the Ravens are going to take you know advantage a little bit more. They went out and drafted Devin Duvernay and James Prochet, two guys who excelled uh, as you know underneath slot machines that were catching a lot of screens, 72 between the two of them. They were, I believe, second and fourth in all of FBS last year in slot catches, or excuse me, in screen catches, uh, receptions. But then you look at the way that they were able to attack downfield. Devin Duvernay is a big top, was a big time 6A Texas track star who ran a 10-500 meter, won the 6A state championship in Texas. He can really test you vertically. And he's not a guy that has a ton of, you know, uh, shake. He's not incredibly nimble. He's not super shifty the way Hollywood is, but he can really fly. And there's no one other than Hollywood Brown. And, and I would go ahead and say that Devin Duvernay's ability to uh, push deep, and that's going to get used as a decoy a good bit, I would think, as well as a couple targets. But his ability to deep to test deep will be better than Hollywood's was last year. I think that Duvernay will be able to hit uh, faster miles per hour than, he, than Hollywood was able to while he was kind of injured. And he'll give an extra element they can use Duvernay as that decoy. And if you don't take care of the decoy, the decoy is going to be open. So that also makes sure that Hollywood doesn't have to be the decoy, the one who is shifty, the one who can beat press, who can line up inside or outside. Uh, and when you have Hollywood and are, and are not forced to use him as that decoy to kind of take the safety off over top, it's going to allow him to run some digs, some curls, some you know deep outs, uh, some, some blaze routes, all that good stuff, some post corners, and really set up guys one-on-one. -on -one. And so when you have a couple guys that are deep threats like that, that have some speed, I think it's going to be super, super fun to watch. They didn't have that element of speed last year. And it's just going to further open up things for guys like Willie Sneed and Mark Andrews. And Mark Andrews is, is a really great deep threat as a tight end, but uh, he's, going to, he's going to be able to push linebackers and safeties the same way he did last year, deep over top and, and really test their limits. But having Hollywood Brown, having Devin Duvernay, um, you know, Boykin, a, a guy that really ran some good deep routes last year. And Lamar just didn't quite find him or wasn't able to be quite on target. And hopefully they're able to get on the same page. But you go look at those three wide receivers between Boykin, Hollywood Brown and Devin Duvernay. Those are all four, 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 three guys uh, that can just burn. And Lamar working on the deep ball passing, as we were discussing, com combined with those guys. Uh, Hayden Hurst is now gone. And Seth Roberts is now gone. Hayden Hurst, again, a good vertical threat as a tight end, but he's not as good as a vertical threat as a Devin Duvernay. So I believe that the Ravens are going to be able to take advantage more. They're going to test defenses more. And as John Harbaugh kind of famously said now, that was his big sentiment for the offseason and for the offense was when defenses want to load the box, the Ravens have to make them pay. And they're going to have to make them pay by being accurate, by being on the same page as far as where to break routes and, and where to find space on those deep routes and all of those things. And that's what they're going to be working on in camp. I would anticipate last year was a lot of red zone passing in camp, a lot of short yardage passing, a lot of goal to go passing, 
but I think we're going to see some more deep passing, some more 15 plus yard passing drills in, in camp this year uh, as they kind of, you know, lit the NFL on fire in the red zone with the passing Lamar Jackson, the spectacular 20 touchdowns, no interceptions and all that good stuff. So I, I think that the deep ball passing is the next level of this offense. And we're going to see, and hopefully the Ravens are able to be more effective in the passing game. Yeah, I mean, the way that the Ravens drafted and the way that their offense is set out now, I, I really do think with the deep passing, with hopefully Lamar Jackson's improvement as a deep passer, although he is a very good deep passer, as you mentioned and talked about in some aspects, I think this Ravens offense is going to do so many good things in 2020. And I know people are saying, yeah, it's going to fall off. It's going to do this. It's going to do that. But one aspect that I think is really, really, really going to improve is that deep passing attack. But Spencer, that's all I have for you today. Thank you once again for coming on the show and rookies report they reported today i guess but tomorrow as we're recording this segment but we are going to have football it looks like i'm not going to get ahead of myself but hopefully we'll be one step closer to football when we talk next week absolutely i still am kind of waiting to see if i'm going to be able to cover training camp in an official capacity this year so if so make sure to follow me on twitter make sure to go to baltimorebeatdown.com all that good stuff and i'll try and keep you guys in the loop my at is at ravens for dummies and you can find me on Twitter. Make sure to give Kevin those five stars and give the guy some love. He works his tail off giving you guys the best Ravens content. So thank you so much for having me, Kevin. Thank you, Spencer. When we get back tomorrow, it's more Ravens talk from us here. So stay tuned for that, and I will see you tomorrow.